We turn this afternoon to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 20 to 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 24. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We have identified the Thessalonian epistles, that is 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, as having to do with the second coming of our Lord Jesus. In virtually every chapter, Paul references the Lord's coming and what Paul does with the subject of the Lord's coming, even as he writes to the Thessalonian Christians, Paul shows the implications of the coming of Christ for daily living. And in this chapter, which we have been covering some weeks, we have been seeing how Paul lays out for the Thessalonian Christians what the coming of Christ should mean for their lives, and we have seen that the Thessalonians, the coming of Christ should affect how they relate to one another, how they minister to one another. Last time we began a section that concerned how the believer should relate to the Lord and his word. Paul gave the instruction, do not despise prophesyings. And under this heading of our relationship to the Lord and his word, Paul gives a second instruction. He says there in verse 20, we are to value the word of God. We are to value the word of God. Here's what he says. Do not despise prophecies. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 14, he had to address the uncontrolled preoccupation with spiritual gifts. In the Thessalonian church, he had to deal with another faulty attitude with respect to the gifts of the Spirit, in particular the gift of prophecy. And that excess that he had to contend with here in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, concerned the tendency to downplay prophecies, to despise prophecies. Hence his injunction, do not despise prophecies, or as the NIV puts it, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Now, the ready assumption of many in reading Scripture and encountering this word prophecy is that the reference is always to foretelling, to declaring future events before they occur. And there are few things to bear in mind when we think of predictive prophecy in both the Old and New Testaments, this phenomenon of prophecy. And the first thing to which I call your attention is that in the Old Testament, although predictive prophecy is more prominent than in the New Testament, the majority of the prophets' utterances were by and large a proclamation or telling forth of scriptural truth. In other words, the prophets of the Old Testament were largely preachers of the word of God, or we could say foretellers of the word of God, than they were foretellers of the future. The second thing we need to note is that in the New Testament era, there seems to have been a fading away of prophecy as it relates to foretelling. 
Yes, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27-28, we learn of a prophet by the name of Agabus, who by the Spirit foretold that there would be a great famine in all the world, the known world at that time. And it's significant to note that Agabus, the Luke says of Agabus, concerning his prophecy, that it was by the Spirit. That is significant, that Luke should tell us that it was by the Spirit. Because, you see, it is the influence of the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference between a prophet and a mere prognosticator. A true prophet of God speaks and utters the mind and will of God, the revelatory will and mind of God, by the Holy Spirit. A prognosticator speaks of his own steam, he speaks out of his own mind, out of his own spirit. And he may be right, and he may be wrong. The true prophet, under the anointing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is never wrong. He's always right. In Acts chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, Agabus, the same prophet, again prophesied, predicting that the Jews at Jerusalem would bind Paul. In fact, he made that declaration in dramatic fashion. He took off Paul's belt and he bound Paul and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this will happen to the man who owns this belt. In light of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, however, which speaks of the sufficiency of Scripture, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, which speaks of the finality of God's revelation in Christ, it seems to be the case that you and I should not be looking for some revelatory prophetic word in our time. There's strong indication that that particular gift has gone off the scene. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, underscoring the sufficiency and the finality of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here's what Paul says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have to understand that in the days of the apostles, and we are going to the New Testament era, the early days, because the canon of Scripture was not yet completed. God was still speaking to people through revelations. Of course, Paul had revelations, which he declared as an apostle. There were prophets in the church. We read that in Acts chapter 13, prophets who could get up and speak immediately as from God concerning some future event. We notice in the book of Acts, and as we read through the epistles, that that particular function was no longer in force. As regards the function of the New Testament prophet, here is how Paul describes the function of the New Testament prophet, bearing in mind that prophecy is not simply about foretelling, but also forthtelling, that is declaring or telling forth the word of God. Listen to how Paul describes the function of the New Testament prophet. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3 that the one who prophesies speaks to people for, here it comes, their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And that statement suggests that prophecy there takes the form of forthtelling, of declaring the truth of the Word of God, of bringing the Word of God to bear on people's lives. Now, if Paul's exhortation, do not despise prophecies, had in view predictive prophecy, 
which is very much possible given the fact that, as we said, in those days, in that era, there was continuing revelation. The, the scriptures were not yet completed. That it may have been, as one commentator suggests, that there were erratic prophetic claims in connection with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may have been that some were claiming to prophesy as to the time, as to the seasons of the coming of Christ, and this is suggested in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul wrote there, and this is the verse that gives a kind of hint that there were some who were making predictions, erratic predictions, in connection with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because Paul wrote there in 2 Thessalonians, not 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So we get an indication there, a hint there, that some were abusing this gift of prophecy, approaching the gift in an erratic manner, making pronouncements that were contrary to the revealed word of God as found in Scripture. As we've seen, the Thessalonian Christians were so well exposed to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, they seem to have been so obsessed with this teaching that many of them had stopped working. What were they doing? They were so taken up with the coming of the Lord. They were looking for him to return. What's the sense in working? We see a hint of that in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 and 11. If it was true that there was this erratic prophetic claim regarding the timing of Christ's return, then against the backdrop of such excess, Paul was apparently cautioning the church against going to the extreme of throwing out prophecies altogether. Well, the question is, how should we today, given the fact that from our understanding of the word of God, we are not expecting, we are not looking for someone to get up in the church and to declare a word from the Lord concerning the future. How do we apply this command, do not despise prophecies? Bearing in mind that prophecies is not, prophecies relate not just to foretelling, but to foretelling. And here's how we apply this verse. For us not to despise prophecies in the sense of the telling forth of the word of God, it means that when it comes to the preaching of the word of God, we should see to it that we give it our full attention. Not to give the word of God our full attention, not to be wrapped with attention at the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, is to despise it. We are not to be neglectful in obeying that which we have heard, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Every time you and I come under the sound of the word of God, under the preaching of the word of God, we must see it, yes, as a joyous moment because it's a privilege to hear from God, but it is also a solemn moment. Why? Because this is the almighty God of heaven speaking to us through his word, through a human agent, the preacher. Now, the preacher has no special thing about him. He's simply a vessel. What he bears is the eternal living word of God that has the power to not only save souls but transforms lives to convict 
God's people of their sins and to transform them into the character, the likeness of Christ. And that is why we need to give it serious attention. We despise prophecies when we willfully refuse to be present for the preaching of the word of God. Now, here's a person who says, well, you know, I don't feel like going to church today. I just feel like lounging around. Well, if that becomes a pattern, I'm not saying that, you know, things like that don't happen. But if that becomes a pattern, a settled pattern, where we little stories set by the word of God and the preaching of the word of God and hearing the word of God, then that is tantamount to despising the word of God. When we become angry with the preacher for declaring the truth which runs counter to our liking, the truth which convicts us of our sins, we are despising the word of God. So the attitude we should have then to the Lord and his word, number one, we should not quench his spirit as we saw last time. And here, we should value the word of God. We should value the word of God. Thirdly, In terms of our attitude to the word of God, not only should we value the word of God, but we should vet all utterances claiming to be the word of God. We should vet all utterances claiming to be the word of God. Look at verse 21. He says this, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. This command is very much related to the previous command where we are told, do not despise prophecies. And running into verse 21, the sense is this, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. The command here is a command against gullibility, against the tendency to welcome in an uncritical way all prophetic claims. Paul is saying here that just because someone comes purporting to be preaching the word of God does not mean we give it uncritical attention. Today, there are many who claim to hear a word from the Lord. And because of such highly subjective claims, we need to test them in light of the inscripturated word of God. That is to say, scripture itself. Our Lord Jesus warned in Matthew 24, verse 11. He says this, that many false prophets would appear and lead many astray. And that's why we need to be discerning. That's why we need to test those things which we hear, which purport to be of God. We're to test everything, every instance of preaching, every instance of teaching which purports to be from the Word of God, we are to carefully examine. Word of God teaches, Jesus himself is speaking, he says this, we are to be critical and discerning as regards the things we hear. Jesus says, take heed what you hear, and he also says, take heed how you hear. We must be critical and not be simple-minded believing everything. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15. In light of the many prophetic claims that were clamoring for their attention, Paul counseled the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirit to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You see, because of the proliferation of false teachings in our time, at lunch table we're talking about that. We're talking of one group in particular. 
And there are many devious, many dangerous false teachings, we would say, of these teachings that they destroy souls to a Christless eternity. So that with respect to what we hear being taught, you and I should be like the Berean Christians of whom Paul, of whom Luke wrote in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Luke says of these Christians, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. As we have often said, regardless of how much we respect a particular teacher, let's personalize it, regardless of how much you respect me, respect Pastor Horjas as teachers of the word of God, you must never, we must never take at face value what is being said without ensuring that it's actually so. We should also test those who purport to be servants of God, not just those who, not just the word of God itself, but those who purport to be servants of the word of God, preachers of the word of God. Why is that important? Because Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 through 15 of what he describes as men of, who are false apostles, deceitful workers, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. Here's what he says, verse 14, and no wonder... For even Satan himself, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Why do we need to be critical of not just the word of God, but even the messenger of the word of God? Listen, because they can influence our conduct. They can by their own lifestyle, they can influence for good or for bad our lives. Now, in addition to testing everything, Paul tells us there in verse 21 that we are to hold fast what is good. And the point here is this, that after testing and finding the teaching we have heard to be genuine, what we should then do is we should firmly hold to it, endeavoring to conform to it, endeavoring to obey. That's how we hold fast to the word of God. And if we do not have that attitude, if we do not have that approach, and what happens is this, after a while, we keep hearing the word of God, it keeps slipping away from us. Why? Because it never takes a hold of our lives through obedience and commitment to what God says. And then fourthly, Paul gives this instruction. Not only are we to value the word of God, vet the word of God, but we are to abstain from every form of evil, every form of evil. Now, this command may refer specifically to claims of prophetic utterance, that utterances that do not match up with the word of God, that is not consistent with the teaching of the word of God, or it may refer generally to every hint or manifestation of evil of that which is contrary to godliness. So the reference can be either to prophetic utterances, to the preaching of the word of God, or to sin in general, that which is evil in general, that which is contrary to godliness. Whichever way we take this command, the bottom line is this, whether it comes in the form of false teaching or faulty, ungodly living, evil not only hurts its perpetrators, but can potentially derail and destroy an entire church. That's why we need to be critical. That's why we need to be discerning. That's why we need to steer clear of every form of 
evil. You see, like gangrene, the word of God teaches that like gangrene, evil utterances spread, affecting those who hear it, 2 Timothy 3, 17, and their teaching, Paul says, will spread like gangrene. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Hence, Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. And so the watchful, discerning, critical believer should avoid, like the plague, every form of compromise, every form of sin, everything that is questionable. Anything that has the smell of evil, the look of evil, must be shunned. Finally, in verses 23-24, Paul expresses his closing prayer for the Thessalonian Christians. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This prayer, this benediction is rich in spiritual truths. In this prayer, notice, first of all, Paul implicitly assures the Thessalonians that the God with whom they have to do is the God of peace. The God of peace. What does that mean? Well, of course, it means, a way of reminder, he was the one who came and made peace with us, we never, when seeking to make peace with him, we were enemies of his, hostile to him, alienated from him, and yet he came to us in our hostility, in our enmity toward him, and made peace. Colossians 1, 20 and 21. That God is the, clearly the God of peace implies his favorable relations with his people. That God's wrath is no longer leveled against them. It implies also that he is the source of peace, is the fount of peace, such that he is the one who imparts to us, who imparts to our hearts peace. That protective peace that keeps our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. So the first thing we notice about this benediction, it characterizes God as the God who is the source of peace. He's the God of peace. Secondly, Paul in this benediction declares that the God with whom we have to do is the God who sanctifies his people. Is the God who sanctifies his people. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in which after having justified the believer, declared the believer righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, then transforms that person's life into actual, practical, righteous living. The Word of God teaches that God sanctifies those whom he justifies, which means this, that there is no true, genuine salvation apart from the sanctifying work of God in our lives, whereby we grow and conform to God in holiness. Without which, Hebrews chapter 12, 14 tells us, no man will see the Lord. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul told the Thessalonians that it is the Lord himself who would sanctify him. Notice what the text says, the Lord himself, no, may the Lord himself sanctify you. That word himself, it's actually emphatic in the Greek, autos, um, suggested there that 
sanctification is derived from no other source. As we said this morning, it is not a matter of our willpower. It is not a matter of our striving. It is not a matter of how good we try to be. It is not some kind of system that we follow in order to be sanctified. It is God himself who does the sanctifying work in his people. The point is, our sanctification is not of our doing. It is a supernatural work of God whereby we are enabled to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Hence, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, we are told, work out your own salvation with fear, with trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. Thirdly, in this benediction, Paul speaks of the thoroughness of God's sanctifying work in our hearts and lives. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Here it is, completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Here we are reminded, we are implicitly reminded that God has a vested interest in every area of our lives. God is concerned concerned with our bodies. He's concerned with the entirety of our beings. And God is concerned that we be holy in every aspect of our lives. God is intent on maturing and perfecting us in holiness with respect to all aspects of our lives, physical as well as spiritual. There's no area of our lives that is off limits as far as God's sanctifying purposes for our lives is concerned. To this end, Paul says, he will sanctify us completely. Our whole spirit and soul and body will be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, in this benediction, Paul teaches that the believer's sanctification has in view the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we find constant admonitions, constant warnings urging us concerning the need to be in a state of holy preparedness for the return of our Lord. 1 John 3, verse 3, the Apostle John, in referring to the coming of our Lord Jesus, the prospect of our meeting with him, of our seeing him as he is, he says in 1 John 3, verse 3, and every man who has in him this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Peter, after talking about the prospect we have of having new heavens and a new earth, he says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And implicit in Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is that God gives the assurance that he will see to our sanctification the completeness of his work of holiness in our lives at the coming of Christ. Yes, we are going to be brought to perfection at Christ's return. That's what we refer to as our glorification. But in the meantime, we are challenged to live in such a manner that when he returns, we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. Well, fifthly and finally, in this benediction, Paul expresses the guarantee, the guarantee that God will surely bring to completion his sanctifying work in the lives of his people. Verse 24, here's what he says. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? Sanctify you completely. Soul, spirit, body. 
at the coming of Christ. The guarantee we have here is in verse 34. The guarantee resides in the fact that having called us, effectively called us, God will complete that work of salvation in our lives by making us completely righteous in his sight. Not just positionally, but practically. This reminds us of 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, in which Paul assured the believers at Corinth, and you remember who these believers were, how they behaved. They were very immature, very ungodly in terms of how they conducted themselves. Paul was writing to these believers, these believers in Christ. And beyond their faults, beyond their flaws, Paul was able to see them as they are in Christ. And here's what Paul had to say to these Christians. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The caution here, however, is that this should not become license for sin. The teaching of the word of God here, however, is this, that notwithstanding our flaws or failures, our sins or weaknesses, our immaturity, our struggles, having saved us, God will see to it that we are kept safe, that we are preserved, and in the end, he's going to complete that which he has begun, which he has started in us. How comforting, how assuring is this prospect. Faithful is he who called you also will do it.